Well, we've come to the end of our journey through the book of 1 Peter. And I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today we'll look at verses 12 through 14 and how we can experience God's grace. Peter addresses this type of issue in these verses. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Scripture says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. You know, when we talk about experiencing God's grace, I find that it's most easy to experience God's grace when our hearts are ready to embrace it. What do I mean by that? Well, God is gracious to all people. In a very general way, God is gracious to the agnostic. God is gracious, gracious to the atheist. He's gracious to the Mormon, to the Muslim. God is gracious to anyone who's living and breathing because God's grace, as we properly understand it, is His unmerited favor. And God shows His unmerited favor to all people. But God especially shows an extra degree of grace or unmerited favor to those who receive His Son. God's saving grace comes to you and to me as we respond to and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can experience God's grace or we can miss it. Even if we're saved, we can miss a daily experience of God's grace. We might put our eyes elsewhere and miss the experience of understanding and knowing what it is exactly that God has done for us that day. I believe that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we experience God's grace best when our hearts are ready to embrace it. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we have a couple of example, examples that Peter gives us in verse 12. The first one is a guy by the name of Silvanus. Scripture says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you, briefly what peter was talking about was that he had a message that he wanted to give these other believers peter knew that persecution was coming they're right at the forefront right at the edge of persecution in the early 60s a.d and he wanted he had a message that god had laid upon his heart and he needed to get that message to these people that lived hundreds of miles away in asia minor and in in a modern-day Turkey. And so Peter uh, asked his friend Silvanus, his partner in ministry, to write these things down that Peter recounted to him. And so that's why Peter says, I have written to you briefly through Silvanus. Silvanus was the one who uh, wrote this down. Well, who was this guy, Silvanus? I mean, we know who Peter is. Peter was one of the 12 apostles. Peter was, in fact, probably the... Uh, more than anyone else, the spokesman 
for the 12 apostles. Peter was one of the three that went up on the mountain of transfiguration and saw Jesus transformed into all of his glory. Peter was the one who walked out on the waters when Jesus said, Come and walk out on the waters with me. The only person other than Jesus Christ to have ever walked on water was Peter. Peter had been with Jesus. He knew Jesus. We know about Peter. Peter's written about in the book of Acts extensively. Peter wrote two books in the New Testament. Peter was the leader of the church. What did Jesus say to Peter upon Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Jesus responded to Peter that you're correct. And upon you, upon this declaration, I will build this church. And it was a play on words on Peter's, um, Peter's own name. Because Peter, the name Peter means stone. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. We know about Peter, but who's this other guy? Silvanus. We don't know much about him. Let me just say from the outset, whether or not you're a famous Christian doesn't matter. Whether you're a faithful Christian does. And Silvanus I'm going to show you was a man who was full of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As godly a man as they come was Sylvanus. Sylvanus is better known by his shortened name, shortened name, Silas. When you read about Silas in the New Testament, and you read about Sylvanus here at the end of Peter's first letter, talking about the same guy. Silas was the one that when the question came to the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and up to that point, the only official understanding of who the church, who the people of God could be in the minds of those believers at the church of Jerusalem is, well, God has chosen Jews, and so believers have to be Jews. That's the way they understood things. But then there was a problem. Gentiles, non-Jews, began to receive the Lord Jesus Christ they began to exhibit the signs of being filled with the very Spirit of God. And so, what was the church at Jerusalem, led by Jewish people, Jewish men, what were, how were they going to respond? Scripture tells us that in Acts chapter 15, that they studied the issue, they heard the testimony, that the elders met, the apostles met, and they came to an understanding that these non-Jews are brothers of ours in Christ because they have received the Spirit of God. And so they wrote, the church of Jerusalem wrote a letter, the apostles and the elders of that church wrote a letter to these new believers in Christ who were not Jewish, asking them to do a certain number of things in order to not upset Jewish believers in Christ and also to help them grow in their own faith. And Silas was so trusted by the church at Jerusalem that he was one of the few men commissioned to take that letter from the church to these new Christ followers, instructing them how to live. And the believers in Jerusalem called Silas this term in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, they said, He is a leading man among the brothers. Now, 
Silas, Silvanus, whatever you want to call him, he may not have written any of the letters that we have in the New Testament, and he didn't. He may not have been the most famous of all the followers of Christ, and he's not. But it says something for you. When the people that you know as godly and following Christ, like Peter and Paul and all of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, when they vouch for you, that says something about you. When the leaders, the godly leaders of the church say about him, he's a leading man among the brothers. Well, that's good enough for me. That makes it for me. When you have a godly woman say about you that you are one of the leading faithful Christian women among God's people, that says a lot about you whether or not you're famous. When you have a godly man say about you, this is a godly man, one of the faithfulest men that I've ever known, that says something about you. That's what they said, in essence, about Silas. We know in Scripture that Silas traveled to Corinth to tell people about Jesus there. He went on a mission trip, a very long mission trip to tell people about Jesus. We know that Simon... When he was at Antioch, he preached a sermon that was so moving and so encouraging that the fact that he preached that sermon made its way into Scripture for all eternity. Acts chapter 15, verse 32 says that Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. You know it's a good sermon if it's a long sermon. And uh, he preached... A lengthy message. In fact, it says that Judas, that's Jude, when, when Jude and, and Silas, they teamed up. Their sermon perhaps was so long, they had to tag team on the thing. But it was a message that the church of Antioch, the people of God, had to hear. And God laid it upon their hearts, and they brought that word of God to God's people. That's who Silas is. Silas, more famously, is known for going with the Apostle Paul, and along with Timothy, on Paul's second missionary journey. And he was imprisoned with Paul because they boldly confronted evil powers that were confronting them. And so you had Silas, a partner with Paul. You have Silas here, named Silvanus, a partner with Peter. This is an important man. This is a man who is godly, who is faithful, there are some lessons real quick that we can learn from Silas's life. Number one, tell people about Jesus. That's always good. Number two, encourage fellow believers. Silas did that. Number three, maintain high moral character. You have to maintain high moral character or else whatever else you say doesn't matter a whole bunch. Number four, actively serve God in church. Silas was active in that. And speak and act boldly against the powers of evil in society. Silas did that. And so Silas, this is a good godly man that Peter tells us about. Silas is someone that experienced the grace of God. His heart was ready to receive it, and he was able on a daily basis to experience God's grace, and God used him in mighty ways. Another example that Peter points out in the same verse is not only Silas or Silvanus, but himself, Peter himself. Verse 12, Peter continues. He says, I have written to you briefly 
exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter says, I've written this stuff to you. I've written this message to you through Sylvanus, but I've written, this is my message that God has laid upon my heart that I've given to you. And Peter says, I've written to you briefly. Now, it may be, it may be sort of strange that Peter says, I've written to you briefly. Why is that? Because it's taken us 25 weeks to go through this book. That doesn't seem like a real brief letter. And you might say, well, you know, the, the, the book of uh, 1 Peter, it's certainly not as long as the book of Romans. Well, that's certainly true. But you have to understand that the other letters that archaeologists have found that date from the same time in the first century, those letters are brief, very brief. It was expensive to write a letter. It was very challenging to write a letter. In fact, most other letters from the first century were shorter than the shortest book in the New Testament, than, than 3 John. And so when Peter says, I've written to you briefly, part of you sort of wants to think it's sort of tongue-in-cheek because this is extremely long for a first-century letter. But if you understand Peter's heart, what he's saying is, I've got so much more that I want to say that I can't put it all down on paper. You know, when you're passionate about something, it's hard to keep your comments brief. When you're passionate and you're knowledgeable about something, it's hard to keep those comments brief. I remember when I was a freshman in college being asked to write a 10-page paper. Well, you might as well ask me to jump over the moon. How, how is a freshman in college supposed to be able to write 10 pages on something? You know, I didn't know, no, I didn't know 10 pages of things to write. But later, as a graduate student, being asked to limit your paper to only 10 pages, that's a challenge because you know an awful lot. There's a lot of things you want to say, and so you've got to narrow things down. You have to focus things down. Peter, I think, was having to do that here in this message in the book of 1 Peter. You know, and it's similar even today, keeping a sermon down to 30 minutes or so. Um, my very first sermon, and you might long for this sermon, but it was probably about 11 minutes long. But it was terrible. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 18 years old. The only experience that I had was sitting and watching my, my, my pastor, Jimmy Draper, preach. And so I didn't know how to write a sermon. I didn't know how to deliver a sermon. You might say, well, you haven't learned much since then. That's probably true. But I didn't know. I did my very best. And the only positive thing that I can say about that message was I was faithful to God's Word. Nothing else was good about it. But I was faithful to God's Word. And if you preach a message or teach a Sunday school lesson or however you convey God's Word to somebody else, if you're faithful with it, God can use it. It's hard sometimes to keep a message, a sermon, down to 30 minutes or so. But when you think about the Bible itself, one of the amazing things about this book is its brevity. And you might think, well, that's sort of crazy. Look how thick this preaching Bible is. And it's a nice preaching Bible. These pages are thick and everything. This Bible is 1,718 pages long, and that doesn't include the maps. This Bible is a thick Bible. But when you think about it, it's really brief. Because what did God do when He put together His Word? God's blueprint 
for humanity, regardless of culture, regardless of time, is contained in only 66 books in this Bible. And that's pretty amazing. This is His blueprint. God's calendar is in the Scriptures. God's plan is in the Scriptures. The salvation that God gives is in the Scriptures. Everything God intends for us to know about Himself and what He's doing is found in the Scriptures. It's amazing that it is this brief. If you go to Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and you go into the Roberts Library there, you're walking into the largest theological library in the world. Well over 300,000 volumes, books, encyclopedias, everything under the sun is in that building. It's really incredible. But what you need to know is in this book right here. You don't need to read 300,000 volumes to understand about God. God has put it all right here. It's amazing how brief Scripture is. He's given us a message for any generation, a message for any culture right here. People talk about how millennials are dropping out of church, how millennials, the younger people, are, are abandoning the faith. They don't want it once they grow up. And the the question that may come to mind is, well, is, is the, are the Scriptures outdated? Does it just not speak to our younger people? And I say the answer is absolutely not. God's Word is timeless. God's Word is timeless. God always speaks to any culture. God always speaks, regardless of the time frame and generation that culture lives in. God speaks through His Word. It's amazing how brief it is, and it's amazing how the Bible is so completely unique. I mean, you can read the sacred, quote-unquote, sacred writings of any man-made religion. You can read the Quran of Islam. You can read the Book of Mormon. You can read the Vedas and the Puranas of Hinduism. You could read the uh, Tipicata of, of Buddhism. You can read any sacred scripture that any man-made world religion offers. And none of them read like the Bible. The 66 books of the Bible were written over approximately a 1,500-year period by more than 40 different human authors. Kings wrote portions of God's Word. Fishermen wrote portions of God's Word. Physicians, shepherds, prophets, tax collectors, and others, they all contributed to the writing of God's Word. And yet there is a unity in the very Word of God that tells us that God has brought His Son to this world in order to bring us into His kingdom. That's the central message of Scripture. It's amazing how brief it really is. The only sure testimony of God's grace is that which we find in the Bible. There are some Christian uh, traditions, some Christian churches that place authority in two different areas. They say it's the Bible plus church tradition. That's where we receive our authority, they say. But listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees about their false traditions. He said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. According to Jesus, there is the Word of God, which is sure, and there is then the traditions of the church or of the religion, the traditions of man, which may or may not be correct. But God's Word is always correct, according to Jesus. Now, traditions are not inherently evil, but traditions can become a hindrance to the Spirit of God when they contradict God's Word or when they carry no meaning to the culture of the day. Traditions can never become our authority because traditions lack the permanent quality, the timeless quality that anchors a church to its faith. That's why the Bible and the Bible alone is the authority that we rest upon. That's one of the characteristics of a Baptist church is that we try to have the Bible as our sole authority. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 35, Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 17, to sanctify them, meaning you and me, sanctify them with truth. And then he said to the Father, Your word is truth. If you're going to embrace God's grace and experience it, I'm telling you right now, you better invest your life in the Bible. You better invest your life in the very word of God. Nothing else is worth your time when compared to Scripture. Become a student of God's Word. Bring your Bible with you to church. Begin to memorize God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. I'm a big fan of all the apps and the computer and everything else that you can use to uh, access God's Word. One of the challenges, though, is that the same device that you use to access God's Word is the same device that you can get some notification on Twitter about it, about something that doesn't even matter. Okay? There's nothing that I think, in my personal opinion, that can ever replace the written Word of God, being able to hold it and read it. Because this written Word of God, it'll never have a little notification, a ding, or anything else that pops up and says, hey, look at me, look at me, look, look at me. No, your focus is on the Word of God. We experience God's grace when we're ready to embrace it. And if you want to be ready to embrace God's grace, I encourage you to be a student and fall in love with the Word of God because it is an expression of God's heart. We also experience God's grace when we greet one another with affection. Now, look at verse 13. It says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you sends you greetings and so does my son Mark Peter was in quote unquote Babylon in Rome writing to believers in Asia Minor where he had apparently ministered earlier and the church at Babylon the church there also sent their greetings as well think about that you have two different groups of people two different churches they had never met each other and Peter says the church that I'm serving with, all these people that you've never met, 
They say hello. They send you their greetings. They wish you the best. They're praying for you. How in the world is it that two separate groups of believers in Jesus who had never met each other could have affection for one another, could have a, a love for one another? How is it today that in your heart and in your mind, if you were to think of a church meeting today in Nigeria, people that you had never met, that it brings warm feelings to your life. To a church meeting in someone's house in Seoul, South Korea. How does that bring you a sense of joy as a believer? What is it that ties you to these believers that you've never met? It's the Spirit of God. That's what binds churches together, even though they had never met. That's what binds all true Christians together. We might be of different nationalities, different languages, but if we're believers in the Lord, we have the Spirit of God in common. We are likewise chosen by God. That's the term that we read about in verse 13. She who is in Babylon, this church who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. What has God done? God has chosen you to be a part of His kingdom. And what else has God done? The same God has chosen people in Nigeria to be a part of His kingdom. People in Seoul, South Korea, to be a part of His kingdom. We make an incredible mosaic, a mosaic that only God and His wisdom can see. We can't see it just yet because we're part of that mosaic. We just see a little portion of it. But we're, some, we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. To be chosen by God means that God, because of His good pleasure and His good pleasure alone, He has saved you from your sins. He has brought you into His family. He has adopted you to be a part of His family. Peter says in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he said, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He began this book by saying we're chosen. He closes this book by saying we're chosen. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, We are choice and precious in the sight of God. We're chosen by God. We're elected by God. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. There's a lot of differences between us and churches around the world. There's a lot of differences between us and churches down the street. But despite of our differences, we're brought together because God has chosen us to be one family. And then, in verse 14... Peter says to this church, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. When I was in college at Criswell College, all of us were Bible students ready to become pastors or teachers of God's Word in some capacity, counselors, evangelists. And we studied this passage 
And there was a guy in my class who said, I think we should take that literally. I think that we should greet one another with a kiss. And I looked at him and said, I don't think so. I think there's a, there may be a, a cultural issue involved. I think that you may drive people away if you're a little bit too friendly. There are cultures that, to this day where the men, grown men, will greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. We see that in the news. We see that elsewhere. We even see it for grown men on occasion in some cultures. Kiss one another with a kiss on the lips. I remember the actor years ago, Dom DeLuise, from an Italian family, funny guy, but a you know, super big Italian family, a strong Italian. And uh, his kids were growing up, his boys were growing up, and they were teenagers. And uh, he, they, one of them came in the house, and he said, give your dad a kiss. He said, Dad, I'm too old for that. I, I, I'm, basic, I'm a man. He said, I'm not going to kiss you on the lips. And Dom DeLuise said, you're Italian, you're going to kiss me on the lips. And they kissed on the lips, you know. It's just, and it's, there's no affection in a romantic sense at all. It's just what some cultures do. I think to translate this into our culture, we might say greet one another with a holy hug or with a firm handshake. But let there be an opportunity for you to look another person in the eye and you greet them with the love of Christ. Why? Because that believer that you're greeting with the love of Christ, Jesus died for that person. And for you, you ought to have in your heart an idea that says, that person deserves my utmost respect. Don't just blow by them. Don't just ignore them. You greet people with a holy hug, a holy, a firm handshake. If you're in a culture where you won't get punched in the nose, maybe a holy kiss. But you greet one another. We also experience God's grace when we allow God's peace to rule in our hearts. Peter concludes this book, this letter really, with a simple phrase, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. You know how Peter began his letter? He said, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Peter begins his letter talking about grace and peace. He ends his letter talking about grace, talking about peace. You know, when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, on three separate occasions... When Jesus greeted his disciples, he said the exact same thing. He said, peace be with you all. Peace be with you all. If you want peace, the only way you're going to find it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is something that the heart of the atheist, the heart of the Muslim, the heart of anyone without Christ is missing they're missing peace but once you come to know the author of peace once you experience his grace peace is sure to follow